Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Why call it a brand as opposed to a franchise? Michael, I know you've written about franchises. Oh, well, actually, before we get started, let me just introduce why each person is on the panel. Uh, in particular, the bios are in, uh, are in the programs that you have, but Warren Littlefield was president of creation of the Law & Order brand. He was a programming executive who worked with Brandon Tartikoff when the mothership was uh, first green-lighted. And Warren later, <coughs> excuse me, from 1991 to 2000 was head of the entertainment division at NBC. So he saw many of the important developments in the series and ultimately the brand. Uh, Ellen Sider is the Stephen K. Neno uh, Chair of Film and Media Studies in the Department of Cinematic Studies uh, at University of California, uh, University of Southern California. Uh, her work ranges across film, television, and new media. It also ranges across uh, the, from the very earliest days of cinematic media to the present. And so she brings some very interesting perspectives to us uh, regarding the development of television in the last couple decades. Michael Schneider is the bureau chief of Television Guide, need I say more. Um, he's in charge of breaking news and feature coverage. Very, I was going to say, very formal television guide. Well, tell, <laughs> you're, you're at a university. You're at a university. We will be, um, yes, TV guide. <clears throat> Excuse me. Got me. There it classes go. it up. I like it. All right. That's good. So he covers uh, breaking news and feature stories or, or manages the breaking news and feature stories out of the Los Angeles Bureau. He's also in charge of operations for TV Guide. And before TV Guide, he's been covering the TV industry for 15 years. Um, started out with electronic media and then daily variety and variety, right? Right. right. Exactly. Okay. So just yeah. spent 12 years at variety. Okay. So. Great. Betsy Skolnick is um, a consultant. She does consulting on media strategies. She's worked for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, AOL Time Warner, um, also National Geographic. She's the person that has brought Law & Order into the online world, and she has some really interesting uh, information to share with us about that, because as you know, the landscape of television is changing, and very importantly, um, Betsy's been sort of on the front lines of where the Law & Order brand is now with respect to those changes in um, the media universe, the multi-platform, multimedia universe that we're in. Jonathan Nichols-Pethick is a professor at DePauw University. He's a media studies professor at DePauw University. Um, he's, also, he's also been working over the last few years on a book called Policing Television. Is it Policing Television? Is that yeah, the, that's what they want me to call yeah, it. Yeah, Policing Television. <laughs> it's, it's about um, the police television genre in the last 20 years. And so he's um, actually been thinking a lot about the genre itself. And he's written, there are various chapters in the book. There's a chapter on homicide. There's a chapter... Um, uh, chapters on NYPD Blue and NYPD Blues and a chapter on Law and Order and it's a fabulous chapter and I, I just I don't mean to chuff it too much but it's a book you'll want to check into it's coming out next year I believe is that right? I hope so okay <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, finally at the end um, uh, Cliff Gilbert Lurie is a, a partner in Ziffrin Brittenham, which is an entertainment law firm in Los Angeles and Cliff's clients um, have included uh, people like Sandra Bullock, Hugh Laurie, Tina Fey, and, of course, Dick Wolf. He's been working as an entertainment attorney since 1986. And the reason that it's wonderful to have Cliff here is, at various moments, Cliff's been 
involved in the negotiations over law and order, negotiations with the studio, negotiations with the networks, and negotiations not only about the fortunes of law and order uh, as a broadcast property or a cable property, but then, of course, its fortunes in other kinds of syndication formats and whatever. As a result, he has a, a really deep knowledge of the business and of law and order, um, the law and order brand as a commercial enterprise. So those are our panelists and a little bit about why, why they're here. Welcome to all of you. Um, and let's get into that brand question. Why a brand instead of a franchise? Michael, do you want to give us a little bit of your thinking? You actually yeah. wrote a book on franchises in television in 2002 for Variety, as I recall. I actually brought that uh, issue here. I, I went to it last <laughs> night uh, just, just to refresh my memory because uh, uh, it, it's funny. Like it, it seems so obvious now given that you know the, the past 10 years we've seen a lot of uh, franchises and brands develop in TV, but I remember back in the day, uh, you know, the, the first thing was that Exiled movie, um, the, a Law & Order movie, which, you know, at the time was a little unusual, um, but that what's, that's what eventually sort of led to SVU and sort of this idea of the brand, and, and I remember talking to, to Dick at the time, and, and one of the things is he came out of the advertising world, as you mentioned earlier, and one of the things he would like to, he would always bring up is he would compare it to Campbell's Soup. And the idea that, uh, you know, you have this brand, Campbell's Soup, but then it comes in about 50, 60 varieties. Every variety is different. Every flavor is different from tomato to alphabet soup to what have you. But it's all under that Campbell's uh, brand. And so it, that comes with a promise of quality or you know what to expect when you pick up a can of Campbell's Soup. And that was sort of the same idea with you know, the branding of these Law & Order franchises. Is every show is different, but... It comes with a promise that this is a law and order show, and so you expect a certain amount of quality and you expect a certain level of storytelling. And that's sort of, I think, why Dick has always been enamored with the brand term as opposed to franchise. But then, what is a franchise by comparison to a brand? You know, where's the distinction? Because, in some sense, is CSI a franchise or is it a brand? I guess it depends who you talk to. I mean, the, the difference with CSI, and, and again, like I'm channeling Dick Wolf here, because uh, at the time, uh, you know, I remember he wanted to very, you know, specifically point out the differences between Law and Order and CSI, is that uh, the CSI shows are all basically the same format, the same idea. It's, it's in different cities, but it's all sort of these forensic crime drama shows. They do the same thing on these shows. It's just different <gasps> locales. So it's CSI Miami. It's CSI, uh, you know, the, the, the mothership Las Vegas, or, or it's CSI New York. But it's mm -hmm. the, sort of the same format, the same sort of storytelling, but just with different characters in different cities. Okay. Go ahead, Ellen. I think one of the most interesting things about Law and Order, um, just coming from the perspective of teaching at a film school where we are advising students who are setting out to you know, write that pilot television script that would be a big success. And if one of my students came to me with a pilot script and called it Law and Order and had big ambitions to make lots of money and do really well and be on television for 20 years, I might say, you know, why don't you try to protect all the rights that you might have? And so don't use a term like law and order, which if you think about the last 20 years, what's fascinating is that it's moved from a very generic title, one that you could not trademark, for example. Um, usually if you really want to lock down the rights and be ambitious about the broad scope of a franchise to go on and on. 
um, you would give it a name like, say, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers that would be distinctive and you could definitely hold the rights to. Now, Haim Saban, who also made a great deal of, um, has had a huge success, had to buy back Mighty Morphin Power Rangers because he didn't see what was developing um, in terms of how a, a brand, how a television show brand could really... Um, be extended, extended into multiple shows, extended on and on. What's interesting is Law and Order, 20 years ago, you could have thought it was a political platform, you could have thought it was an ideology, the term Law and Order. Now, I think it's really um, speaks to the vastness of its success that everyone already knows what you mean if you say Law and Order. They don't think of it as associated with all these other things, whether they've been able to trademark it or not. But what we see is um, the tremendous value in television when you have a brand that supersedes the actors. You know, obviously Law & Order has had extremely talented actors, but no one actor defines the show. And you can take that model of, of really the, the kind of narrative structure and expand it to multiple series um, and have actors come and go. Um, this obviously helps with negotiations. Um, if anybody gets too expensive, you can... Rest in you peace, know, Skeet Ulrich. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no director defines it, no auteur, no writer um, I think Betsy wants to jump in here at this point. I do. I, I think just from the most technical of brand perspectives, there's always a brand value, and then there's brand attributes. And I think that's what makes Law & Order so different. The brand value proposition, I think you stated really well. You know, it's great stories, and it's incredible storytelling. And there's an understanding that there's action in the beginning and the, and the moral play in the second half. And those are those values. But I think from an attribute perspective, in what I focus on, I see what the audience community sees as those attributes that they're in love with. And Law and & Order has consistently put its attributes out there, whether it be uh, the great sound that's going to tell us all to be quiet when we speak too much, ching is an attribute that's expected. Uh, there's a voice in the beginning that tells you whose stories it is. That's an attribute. Uh, there are usually graphics and an introductory song. Uh, there are things that have been consistent from an attribute perspective, and when we chatted about this, um, the audiences really value those attributes. And when recently the Law & Order Los Angeles show uh, launched uh, late last year, uh, they mixed that up a little bit, and the fans noticed immediately. So I think it is like Campbell's Soup. There's a value proposition that says, uh, you know it's going to be good soup, uh, but we always want the flavors to be good, and we know that was Campbell's Soup. Uh, there might always be an extra. There might be something in the label, whatever. If it were missing, people would notice, and people notice. And I think that's the difference with Law & Order. Okay, great. Um, I'll, I'll echo where Mike was. And uh, to me, a brand is a promise, and that's a bond. Um, when, when we looked at the uh, pilot back in 1989, um, we thought it was extraordinary. It scared us somewhat. Um, uh, we hadn't seen, and, and I was fortunate enough to be on the development team uh, that did Hill Street Blues, and Stephen Bochco gave me an education in dramatic television. And so I thought I was prepped for 
go to places you haven't gone before. And Law and Order, that pilot um, that was developed for CBS, and uh, it was gritty, it was real, it was crime and punishment. And no one had ever structurally attempted to do that in the dramatic narrative. Um, and it was very satisfying. So the brand aspect for us, when we held our breath and said, let's go, was to promote that to the audience. And the promise was delivered on um, in a very, very satisfying way because what Dick understood is many of the world's problems are not solved in an hour, um, but ripped from the headlines, stories that you recognized, we're going to take you into the crime, the belly of the crime, the complexity of it, and then we are going to deal with what are the consequences of that. And um, for, for all of us, I think, that there's, there's a satisfaction in the fact that there is a resolution. Not always clean, not always simple. In fact, the most interesting episodes are the ones that say, well, we've brought about this resolution, but what about this? Um, but to me, that satisfaction of what we put out there in terms of that promise and then the absolute delivery on it was essential. Um, I'll, I'll go on if you want for a second about the uh, SVU was essentially Dick coming in and pitching a new series called Sex Crimes. And my response was, you have my attention. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Dick passionately talked ab about the kinds of, of, of horrible crimes that are dominated um, by this nature of sexual predators. And um, of course, Dick told a very, very compelling story. And my response was, I can't get an advertiser for that. We're network broadcasting. We live on advertising dollars. Uh, we've gotten a little bit killed on pedophile priests and some of the other subject matter that you've done in Law and Order. Um, I think the only way we can wrap our arms around the development of that idea is to use the Law and Order brand. Use Law and Order and um, make it a spinoff of that show. And... Um, Dick thought that was really interesting and um, within a few hours uh, said, I can do that. Um, and, and it was really a way to take that promise and uh, f for me, looking at it economically, saying, how am I going to navigate that with, with advertisers? Of course, SVU was a, was a safer way to go uh, ultimately and, and I was gone by the time it was on the air, but that was a much safer approach than uh, sex crimes. Um, but but that's really where the where the brand was born. That, that's a really interesting notion that the brand is is both a, a bond with the audience, but it's also a point of leverage at various moments. A point of leverage as as far as programming here and extension. Cliff, you probably use the brand somewhat in some of the negotiating that you do around. Uh, the Law and Order brand. How does it how does it affect the negotiation process? What what what's the value of having a brand? Well, I was thinking as we were hearing these very articulate, really I think well thought out responses. 
I was, you know, first I was relieved you didn't ask me the question to just, <laughs> I could not possibly attack it from an academic perspective of what the difference is between a, a brand and a franchise. But as I was listening to what the other comments were, it did occur to me that what has happened is, traditionally, a, a television show was spun off from a character. So in other words, the, the traditional way you would have launched another show is you would have taken a character from Law & Order that was appealing to the audience and put in a completely separate show and have detached title to the show, different storyline. And when it grew from Law & Order to Law & Order SVU and Law & Order CI, you would never negotiate each subsequent deal as a brand-based deal. In other words, you would still negotiate against the network or the studio based on the success of the prior show. Okay. So, so in other words, what happened is if you had a successful Law & Order show that when it went to syndication became a valuable asset, you would make the argument that on SVU, you're going to bring an audience and that show would stand on its own and have its own economic life separate and apart from Law & Order. So that gets you to the pilot and maybe for the first pickup order, but after that, whether it gets another 22, a second season really depends on whether that second show succeeded or not. So the brand, you don't really talk about it quite like that, but what you, you know about it is that you will have an opening night. It's, it's like they, they will get sampled, an audience is going to be there, they know what to expect about the show, and then that show will either make it or not. And there have been some Law & Order-based shows that didn't make it. There was something, uh, we called it Law & Order for, uh, I think that was Trial by Jury, and uh, we're now with uh, Law & Order 5, which is Law & Order LA, which we call Lola, that um, <laughs> this is probably the audience that showed up for it. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, we, it, it, it's, what we do know is the people who came to that show from all the online polling that uh, Betsy retrieved you know, had an expectation of what the show was, but whether that show makes it or not will depend on the rating life of that show. Yeah. Let me just take a step back and sort of ask the, uh, a question about the broader picture with respect to police genres. Mm -hmm. um, the police genre itself, uh, the crime genre. Jonathan, is this, is Law & Order a distinctive in the history of, of uh, <coughs> crime genre, um, police genre, legal? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. I think... Um, <clears throat> One of the more obvious comparisons, the earlier comparisons that were made to Law & Order was to Dragnet for some reason because it was so, uh, it moved along so, uh, so quickly and matter-of-factly and there weren't a lot of emotions involved and things like that. Um, and so I think uh, Jack Webb gets sort of lumped into, or Dick Wolf gets lumped into sort of the Jack Webb category there. Um, I think it's connected on the level of that both Jack Webb and Dick Wolf were thinking um, about the genre itself um, and what was potentially, for Jack Webb, it was what was dissatisfying about it, right? Uh, um, and uh, for Dick Wolf, it was sort of what are the possibilities here to do something in this genre that's different than what's currently making the rounds, which were the highly serialized version. So to get something much more episodic, much more... Uh, 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 potentially successful in syndication, I believe, <laughs> right? Um, and so I think there's a, there, there, there are connections to be made to the, to the genre itself, 
um, that are that go all the way back to dragnet. So that that, that put it in that category, and yet um, this this connection uh, between law and order, this crime and punishment uh, uh, cycle, had not been tried before um, uh, to, to any great success. Um, and that look, um, that's, that that gritty look had been developing over time. Uh, certainly shows like Police Story. Um, we're, we're playing with it. Hill Street Blues, obviously, um, had, had developed it to a, a great degree. Um, but that, and so I think in some ways, yes, it, it's distinctive in that it, from a business perspective especially and, and from a, a structural perspective, but it's also deeply connected all the way back uh, to, to the earlier days of television police dramas. Um, I think, the, I think the articulation or the connection between the aesthetics of the show, the structure elements of the show, and those sort of um, institutional or uh, economic decisions that drive what the show's going to be are, are the sort of real interesting area here um, to discover because uh, Jack Webb was certainly developing shows over and over again, right? He had Dragnet, he had Adam-12, he had... Um, Emergency and then Dragnet, Dragnet, Dragnet 67, which was fantastic. Um, uh, <laughs> um, but they were, those brands or whatever it was, that, that, that through line was, was the name Jack Webb that wasn't actually up front, right? Or with M- MTM, uh, that, that kitten, right, was the, the, the brand, but it was sort of behind the scenes. We didn't really have those connections. But here it's right up front, Law and Order, Dick Wolf. This is... The author. Yeah, the author. Yeah. Ellen, did you want to pick up on that? Um, well, I think one of the things that has been remarkable about Law & Order is that while it's true the, they're self-contained episodes, mm-hmm. so they do work better in syndication, there seems to be a profoundly addictive quality to the show, which explains its phenomenal success in syndication on USA. And I know that... Um, Then the other thing that's interesting about it then is I know college students everywhere like to stay home and watch Law & Order all day long instead of going to their classes. (laughs) (laughs) And somehow it has this addictive quality, even though, you know, you'd hope they could watch an hour and still make it to maybe their second class of the day. Uh, But instead, once they get going, they can't stop. You know, um, so uh, there is something uniquely satisfying about the narrative structure and the performances that also makes leaves them wanting more, even though there's no specific narrative so enigma. Heroin in the show. I think it's an interesting. Is. There's an interesting connection there between again the sort of structure, the aesthetics of the show, and then the 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 locations in which you find the show. I mean, this is something that would be impossible 30 years ago, right? Uh, now you can have A&E or TNT or USA run a marathon where you have 20 episodes going in a row, and the way that they structure those without those commercial breaks between the end and the beginning, right? That you mm-hmm. go right into one, and so With there's the this way... Of, yeah. yeah. Right, and, and that, don't forget, guys, I mean, it was, uh, it was the success of that that sort of revitalized the whole off-net, yeah. hour-long yeah. marketplace, yeah. and also in a way seeded these networks uh, that allowed USA to eventually get into original programming, Turner mm-hmm. to origi- get into original programming, yeah. and A&E. So this, this one show, this one brand was, was able to sort of uh, kickstart the entire original program programming uh, juggernaut that USA and Turner now enjoy. Exactly. I, I well, watch those conversations ahead. that 
the college students have during the day. And the amazing thing is that they're very similar to the conversations that maybe the adults have uh, at night, not during school. And what seems to be addictive, again, is all the things everybody's talked about. It's the stories. It's the promise of the stories. They debate the stories, the resolution of the stories. And if you're someone in the conversation that's never seen Law & Order before, someone else in that conversation online um, tells you about a different episode and will even tell you when that episode is going to run uh, in rerun, so you can see that too, and they'll come back and talk about it. <laughs> so it's the stories that keep people addicted. Yeah. Absolutely. But the stories ultimately have to, to play out into a commercial enterprise. And one of the things that's so interesting about this moment, I think, is the fact that um, it's such uncertain waters for the television uh, drama right now. And yet, if we go back to the early years of Law & Order, it was it, when this series was being pitched, it was a very uncertain moment as well. And I thought maybe we could go back and think about where Law & Order came from, uh, just that those very early moments. What was going on in television in the late 80s, early 90s? It was a tough time to be pitching a, a, a one-hour drama, Warren. Well, um, uh, because of Marcy Carcy, uh, comedy had exploded, and uh, comedy was ruling uh, the airwaves in a lot of ways. Um, and um, I think that... Uh, that the episodic nature of a procedural um, was lost for there were big soap operas um, and and soaps are wonderful but uh, there's a curse and a blessing to a soap uh, the curse of a soap is if you're not in um, you feel excluded if you're not in from the very beginning um, once you are in uh, yes they're very good at keeping you hooked uh, there but as as the world uh, offered more and more choices in each and every home of television uh, channels and many, many more shows as cable started to go into more original programming. As the world got more choices, I think one of the genius moves that Dick had was I'm going to offer a show where you can come in for an episode and if you miss it, uh, the next week, you'll be able to go in again. One of the things we found that you know, the first couple of years uh, on air for Law & Order were modest. Um, and it really was the first cable sale of the show where we had a cable network that was pounding, pounding, pounding. That Mike Post music, advertising and promotion, they were launching something that they just got their hands on. Well, that amount of advertising and promotion devoted to the franchise mm -hmm. really helped us at the network because we would go, hey, here, we got the originals over here. <laughs> and, and, and what we found is that cable was helping feed um, exactly what we were offering every week on an original basis. Um, and more and more audience members who, let's face it, we have choices in our lives. They hadn't found the show. They hadn't discovered it. They hadn't yet had that addiction. And when they did, they had another place, and they came back to the network. And then when we landed it on uh, and, and parked it Wednesday night at 10 o'clock, that's when the habit really, really, in addition to the cable exposure, that's when the habit locked in. Um, I had one huge moment of fear when uh, Bochco was developing Cop Rock, and there was insane, insane buzz over what Cop Rock was going to be. 
and um, I had to set the schedule, and I, I really wanted to keep Law & Order at 10 o'clock on Wednesday. And I called up a friend who worked at Fox, and I said, okay, schedule's got to be locked tomorrow. I, I need to see Cop Rock. And it's like, I don't know if I can do that. And I said, call me back. So I got a message, was your mailbox at midnight. <laughs> I was like, okay. Went out, midnight, went into my mailbox, and there was a cassette. I went in, went into my home office, I put it in, and the opening of Cop Rock was spectacular. It was powerful, and, and the music was pulsing, and the gangs rioting, and the cops coming in and battering ram, and I was like, oh, shit, I'm dead. What am I going to do? And then, at the first act break, they broke into an aria, and this, like, chunky, overweight, not particularly interesting guy was singing about the loss of his life, and I just dropped to my knees and went, thank God, this is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I got up the next day, went into work, and I said, uh, you know, Wednesday at 10, uh, law and order, we're locked. This mm-hmm. cop rock is not going <laughs> to work. But the, the, um, oh, I think one of the... Uh, one thing that's key to the success of the brand and that is very much part of the expectation of audiences as well as the addiction. Um, uh, You know, 20 years ago, television, you know, things were rocky and in the intervening years, we've of course seen the rise of reality television. Um, So what is really one of the key elements, and Jimmy Fallon actually and the Emmys this year, you know, he did this tribute song to the end of Law and Order. When one of the lines in the song was, every New York actor with a SAG card, you know, appeared on the show. But that is a very important part of it in that it showcased this vast um, uh, store of East Coast-based, uh, you know, some West Coast-based, but East Coast actors. And so this expectation that you could you would see somebody in a different kind of role as a victim or a witness or a perp or, you know, whatever. New York shows were all shot in L.A. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, I mean, that is kind of... And I think that's one of the reasons why people can watch the episodes repeatedly uh, is that they are really studying these performances often by... I mean, as you saw in the sizzle reel, often by very... Distinguished actors, so it's interesting to see what remind yourself what they looked like 15 years ago. And (laughs) Cliff, did you have something? Yeah, when if we relate this back, the broader question to the story that Warren just told you, Law and Order was not a runaway success when it first launched. In fact, it came out of a failed pilot at CBS that NBC picked up, and it wasn't until it started rerunning on A and E which was a you know, nascent cable service that had started building a pulse and building an audience. So essentially the A&E cell became a promotional vehicle for NBC. But underlying that, the economics of the A&E deal were terrible. Okay? At that time, A&E was paying $150,000 an episode for Law & Order. That's not a very good business model when you look at the license fee NBC was paying for what was then still a fairly expensive show. So it wasn't until you got to the second cycle of syndication for Law & Order, which became the TNT deal, where there's a bidding war between TNT 
and A&E because TNT had seen how A&E had built this huge audience on the reruns of Law and Order. The point I'm trying to emphasize here is if it hadn't been for the emergence of that whole cable TV world where you had different cable TV networks trying to have a signature show on to build their audience, which ultimately led to the competition, so the you know, better pricing for the second cycle. And in fact, for the real, what I'll call, establishment of the branding in the first place, you would have no brand if NBC didn't keep the show on in the first place. NBC wouldn't have kept the show on unless the ratings climbed, which you needed A&E to do in the first place. And you, you, in, every, in every subsequent cycle of sales, because now we're in like four-cycle sales on TNT, pardon me, of A, we're in four-cycle sales of Law & Order, and you're still, and you've got some big deals still out there for SVU and CI. Every time, what you saw is by rerunning it on on the cable, it brought back an audience to the anchor network. Very unusual, and and took the fear out of uh, the networks. That I don't want to spend too much time going through the whole structure of how a network deal works, but networks were really concerned that if they gave up their exclusivity and they were competing against basic cable networks, it would erode the audience for the anchor show, the new episodes, as, as Warren was saying. In fact, it proved, and has proved since with you know, CSIs, too, that, that that just didn't happen. Last thing I wanted just to mention, just to show you how this pricing model has changed, a non-law and order show, which is in its first season, uh, Hawaii 5.0, just sold to TNT for $2 million an episode. So if just imagine the following math, okay? We've just talked about earlier in the interview, there's like a thousand episodes of Law and Order out there. Okay, they're not gonna on second cycles go through for two million dollars an episode. But if you put in any sort of discounted pricing, you can start seeing the value of what this library is to the studio. And on the network side, we've run calculations and basically through the last time we did this, we figured that NBC at the network level had made about ten billion dollars in ad revenue sales. So you've got a studio library that's going to have tremendous value and has been tremendously valuable to the, to the network. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Cliff, to, to sort of illustrate how much the, the world has changed in 20 years, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't the, the original idea of doing law and order was back in 89, there was no aftermarket. There was no off-net market for hour long. So the idea was maybe you could cut them into half hours and at least sell them that way. The syndication mm-hmm. market was exploding with the half-hour product. And mm-hmm. uh, so Dick thought, okay, maybe, maybe if they get chopped in half, maybe they can get sold that way. Um, that was one of the reasons he went into it. But uh, I, I don't think... In any way, for a viewer, that's why it worked. It's all the other attributes that we've talked about. But, think, but that's what the marketplace was like. And, and is it true that, you know, that the marketplace for one hour was um, that what was really failing or really not taking were the, were the one-hour serials? Like, um, so you know, something like In the Heat of the Night cereals, did all right. Serials don't repeat well. Yeah. Um, uh, they don't have the kind of shelf life. Yeah. And, and, of course... The building of a network like A&E and then ultimately TNT, cable, was built on the back of, mm-hmm. of Law & Order more than any other show. Um, that's what launched those networks because they are so repeatable um, that there is episodic, episodic closure, uh, tremendous satisfaction, and it's really, really good. 
Um, but it doesn't require the kind of, um, if you don't watch all 22 episodes or 24 in order, you can enter and exit very, very easily. And Warren's making like a great creative point and what brings, what we're trying, what I'm really trying to anchor in here, there's a platform point too, okay, having nothing to do with the creative of the show. If you didn't have the platform of the cable TV networks gestating at that point, you could have never have gotten the value of the reruns because there was no platform. So when you guys were talking about bisecting into these half-hour segments for for um, st- traditional syndication, that's all that the distributors could think about because that's the only marketplace that existed. And it was really, really expensive because the guild residuals are adverse when you go out and syndicate that way. So it's just the same way we'd sit here today and say, you know what, we can start syndicating to Netflix. I mean, that's something we can now talk about today, but that's, it, it, we, it's nothing when any of us would have talked about five years ago. So you have to kind of roll it back to what existed at the time. You know, Cliff, the other thing is that A&E had nothing. So when they got <laughs> Law & Order, the only thing they screamed about was Law & Order. Now, at a network, at NBC, we had a lot of mouths to feed. So our promotion was spread across so many formats. And you had this one cable network that had one message and one message only, law and order. Betsy? I definitely have to build on that. And I think we were going through that same thing. You said the world was changing. Cable came up. Not sure how that model was going to go. Some people made some risks. A&E took them. It worked. Netflix has now made a risk. That's very recent. I don't think we would be thinking about that even three months ago or four months ago when you think about Netflix. But the episodic nature of Law & Order in a world where um, what I call appointment programming uh, is much less successful. We see that in the lack of uh, gross rating points in general, right? Because people aren't appointment viewing. Law & Order feeds into that perfectly. You can enjoy something and not have had to watch it at a certain time, the week before, even two weeks before, or know anything about it to really enjoy it. So it feeds very well into that. But I think that the business model from uh, the other screens, not just from the difference between cable and broadcast, is still sort of panning out. But what we do see with Law & Order is that the digital world is a great promotional platform, much like like A&E was for the broadcast platform uh, years ago. We find now that younger and younger, uh, to your point, college students and everybody else, our demographic online is looking much younger and starting to pick that up as well. Um, Last week for the premiere of a new episode on air of Law & Order Los Angeles, uh, Law & Order trended on Twitter for almost eight hours globally. Uh, above, I guess Rihanna and Brittany were having a conversation. It was just, <laughs> was just right above them. Wow. Uh, I, I, I couldn't break away from the show to watch Rihanna and Brittany, but I was watching that conversation. And so that takes about um, a million people talking about a show at one time to be doing that. So uh, I think we see those platforms starting to shake out. The economic models haven't caught up, and I think that's a real struggle. Well, one of the things that this conversation brings us to is the question of demographics, audience demographics, because first, you know, the success of Law & Order builds when Annie picks up the series, but it also builds because the series makes some adjustments. I think Warren had something to do with that um, and brought in a, a greater um, 
uh, female viewing audience um, in the in the mid '90s, and that that was a significant change. Now you're suggesting that there's a youth audience that's there, even though the median age for the the television series is is actually somewhere around 51 or something like that. Um, but I'm talking to students in my class the other day. Everybody has watched Law and Order. They watch different series. Um, they come to it in different ways. And so the challenge, as you're suggesting, is this challenge of figuring out how to sort of find the demographic with the series. So my question is both, what role has demographics played along the way? And, and secondly, where does it leave us today? So does anyone want to pick that up, the, the question of demographics? For, for example, that the female audience is a very strong part of the audience for Law & Order, and that was not where it started, right? Yeah, it's critical to the success. Um, and interestingly, the, the, the strength of the platform is that both men and women, um, and what we're seeing on all platforms uh, across all ages, come to it. Uh, I had a meeting with Dick. Uh, we were three years into the show, and I asked Dick to come into my office, and it was just the two of us. And I looked at him, and I said, uh, so the show's going to be canceled. And... Um, his head exploded. Um, he looked at me. I thought he was going to leap across my desk and strangle me. Um, he was. And, <laughs> um, but I got his attention, and that's what I wanted to do. And I said, um, "Here's, we're at a network, and one of the things we have at a network is we have lots of information coming at us. And for the long-term success of the show, um, what we're seeing is that we're just not getting enough women. Um, and how do you get more women? Well, you put more women in the cast, in significant roles in the cast, and you tell more stories. Yes, they're ripped from the headlines, but you also tell more stories that are about women. Um, and um, if you don't do that, um, you're not going to make it. And he said, well, who, who do I have to get rid of? And I said, the cast's outstanding, but it's a men's club. And I'm not going to tell you who to get rid of. I'm going to tell you, you need to add more women. And you're the executive producer. You're the creator. It's an outstanding show. But I'm telling you that without making this adjustment, we will. And, and I, I did this six, eight months prior to before we would set the schedule. I said, it, we're going to get to May, and you're going to say, what happened? Why didn't I warn you? And this is your advance warning. Um, and uh, it, was, it was a difficult meeting. He walked out of my office, and a number of hours later, he called me and said, I understand, um, and, uh, and I, I know what I have to do. I thought that was also a, probably the best executive move I had ever made. I did not try and tell him what to do, um, how to do it. I, I said, look, here's the observation as a broadcaster. You're the executive producer. You'll know how to, how to make this work. Um, and, uh, and it did. And, and what we found, slowly but surely, is that more and more women came into our universe, the show locked in, and uh, it turned out pretty well. 
Yeah. What Warren doesn't Absolutely. know is that Dick's still talking about that meeting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just came up to him yesterday. <laughs> but on top of the, um, the female demographics, which really, really important, because it's interesting when people make these references of college viewing, okay? Part of the problem is, you know, everyone's always after the 1849 demographic, men and women, okay? And one of the problems that we have now in the digital universe that Betsy spends so much time in is trying to figure out how any of us are going to monetize that because once you even get by the piracy issues, even assume you're getting paid for your show, there's huge problems figuring out how you count those viewers and getting any credit for them on Madison Avenue. So we're always trying to argue that we should get credit for Hulu viewing or wherever they're finding you know, Lana or episodes. Hmm? Right, but no one will count it. So, so interesting, if you go back to, you know, Betsy retrieved fantastic demographic information about the Lola premiere on Monday, okay? And we were getting this in real time, and we were all expecting to wake up Tuesday morning and see a great big number in the 18 to 49 demographic on Lola. And even though the show showed fantastic build on the half hour, because there was two episodes back to back, so we had two hours information. The numbers weren't what we would have expected based on your experience. So the way, from a television-centric point of view, that's bad news because the rating points that are being sold are the television rating points. But what we don't have good information is how many people were actually watching these episodes the following day in some other window, some other platform that if you could accumulate that information and monetize it, we may have been ecstatic on Wednesday morning if we put that all together. And it could be the critical difference between Lola's success versus maybe we don't hold on to it. And it's exactly that margin that affects the business model today. Um, And uh, what what is painful for, for a producer is not being able to get credit for audiences' eyeballs that are watching, to hear students you know, staying out of class and watching the show. You know, that's music to a producer's ears. <laughs> um, and, and then the, the pain is, and, and I'm sure I, I woke up uh, for, with anticipation for Dick, having watched the show on Monday, watching uh, the two hours, and I went, wow. I'm surprised in that traditional Nielsen, you know, that that fast national number, that 18 to 49. I was like, really? Mm -hmm. And and it may not be accurate, and that's uh, that's that's unbelievably unfortunate. It's wrong, and that's a dilemma for our business right now. We're we're going to go to questions in just a minute, but let's have one one last comment here. To put a pin on that in in two ways. it's no question or no surprise why Law & Order is constantly promoted on the homepage of Hulu, because it's incredibly successful for them. I talked to the head of iTunes out of curiosity, and I said, why do we not sell as much Law & Order as other shows on iTunes? And he said, funny thing is it's searched for constantly. People search for it, uh, and then they go watch it for free. 
somewhere else, and it's not all counted Mm -hmm. to Cliff's point. And so there are advertising dollars and rating points that just aren't going to all of the right places or aren't aggregating in a traditional way, and that's a real struggle. But from the demographic perspective, one of the panelists you'll hear from later, Charlie Engel, uh, when I first started working on the show, he provided me this immense amount of demographic data that I shared with you and Dick so that I could learn about it. And so you must have done an amazing job of helping Dick... uh, balance the demographics because the demographics of all uh, what I you know what I call sort of the, the flavors of the brand uh, are very very equally um, separated with men and women uh, a really strong mix of minorities as well it's a, it's a really balanced audience yeah um, uh, it, the credit goes to Dick obviously um, we we are urge diversity we we urged uh, more female voice and and Dick knew what to do, and he, he deserves all that credit. Um, you know, I, I don't know for, uh, for Law & Order, I, I know for the number one comedy, Modern Family, uh, 54% uh, of the viewers that watch Modern Family watch it live. So you're looking at a, and the number of DVR, DVR usage goes up every single day. Uh, and so that's one of the greatest dilemmas for the industry right now is when you have hit dramas, hit comedies, and that massive, massive number are not watching it live. Uh, how you get credit for that is, uh, is critical for the future of the business. Yeah, I'll just add to that real quick because sure. the, the issue with Nielsen right now, and not to turn it to a Nielsen and, uh, you know, debate, but, but just to explain sort of uh, why Nielsen is public enemy number one right now at the networks, is <laughs> the networks now sell commercial ratings. It's called C3. It's the first three days of viewership, and it's the actual commercial viewership, not the real viewership of the shows. So Nielsen's argument is because on Hulu and what have you, the commercials don't sync up, it's not the same commercial load on Hulu that it is on broadcast, that they can't morph those numbers together. And until the commercial load is the exact same thing, then they can start actually including Hulu or other streaming in the ratings. But until then, they're not, they're not going to do that. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.